And now, for your feature presentation. One, or two, or three, or four, but five, or five. Welcome to the Force 5 Podcast. I am your host, Jason Kleberg, and if this is your first time, Force 5 is the show that forces a guest to come up with a movie-themed top five list, and then we talk about our picks on air. This week, my guest is Thomas from a podcast called Movies After Work, and we're going to be covering five movies that trip at the finish line, also phrased as five good movies with bad endings. Before we get Thomas on the line, let's talk about a couple of things I watched this past week, and even though I was at Disneyland for most of the week, I finally got a chance to crack open my latest Vinegar Syndrome package. The first disc I pulled out of the box was the one that I watched first. And uh let's just let's just get to it. This one is Surf 2. The surf wars continue when a mad genius pollutes innocent surfer youth and the free beaches of America. Do you know how many brain surges, nuclear visits, or Nobel laureates have been surfers? I'll tell you, none. It's a sprawling surf saga of rebellion. Romance, adventure beneath boiling seas, struggle against uncontrolled substances, and a race to the death by freedom fighters, protecting your right to surf and the American way. Must be from L.A. Surf 2, with music by the Stray Cats, Boingo Boingo, Split Ends, The Circle Jerks, The Beach Boys, and more. Surf 2, the adventure that dares to trash school, police, parents, the beach itself, and the two greatest American institutions of all time. Don't stop innocent kids from drinking cola and surfing. It's the American way. It's the final confrontation of the Surf Wars trilogy. If you missed Surf 1, you owe it to yourself to see Surf 2. Punks and creeps. I think these guys would be mature enough to take surfing seriously. It's twice the fun of Surf 1. Surf 2. A nerd named Menlo has created a soda called Buzz Cola that turns surfers into mindless zombies that have been ravaging a California beach. Where do I start with Surf 2? If you'd like to know what happens in the first one, you're in luck. There is no first one. That's right, this is the first film. Although the word crawl that kicks off the film could have easily been the plot of part one. With that context, get ready for this bonkers story. A nerd with an abnormal grudge against surfers has created a multi-million dollar underwater lab that he somehow sucks surfers down into and then forces them to drink this soft drink that he invented. The whole soda thing is really weird because it feels like some kind of alternate reality. There's like buzz cola machines everywhere, but surfers treat soda like it's something way out of bounds, like it's heroin or something. So no surfer wants to drink the stuff and that forces Menlo to make them do it. The film has a weird, bizarre tone that ranges from wild and wacky, like when a police chief is named Chief Boyardee and he makes moves to the sound of 80-yard cartoon sound effects, or a black principal who enters the room to people saying in unison, Hey, Daddy-O! To straight-up disturbing, like when two girls who are mad that their friends are out surfing call the police and say that they were raped in order to get them in trouble only to have the cops come out and open fire on the lifeguard hut they're in, nearly killing them. Of course, even these abnormally dark moments are a weird attempt at snagging a laugh, but none of the tones presented here actually worked for me. I didn't think any of them were actually funny. 
The zombies, and I'm going to put that in quotes, look less bred from the DNA of a Romero movie and more like cast-offs from a David Bowie space phase music video. They don't spend their time doing anything other than ingesting weird things from motor oil to frogs and don't actually seem like much of a threat. The surfers clearly run this town, just doing whatever they want whenever they want. They routinely skirt the law and spend their time in class betting on frog races while the teacher sits with his feet kicked up on the desk. They care about two things and two things only, surfing and women, and there are a lot of both in this film. In one scene, people pack into a theater to watch clips of people surfing. Yeah, it's not even a movie, it's just clips of people surfing. That is, until Buzz Cola zombies eat the film reel in a scene that seemingly exists solely to pad the runtime. 45 minutes into Surf 2, I started questioning my existence. Or rather, at least what I was doing with my existence. I was watching a comedy that to this point hadn't even made me smile once. And unfortunately, it never got better. The entire movie feels like rejected Saturday Night Live skits where nothing connects and nothing really matters, interspersed with scenes of women dancing on the beach in bikinis. There was one thing that absolutely delighted me, though, and that was the presence of two, yes, two, Beach Boys songs. This soundtrack is stacked. You've got Oingo Boingo, Thomas Dolby, and Talk Talk appearances along with other Capitol Records acts from the early 80s. I'd be interested to listen to the director's commentaries to see how they got access to all the great music in this film. It's definitely the best thing about Surf 2. The problem with the movie isn't its wild and wacky plot. It's that it's not funny, and ultimately it's pretty fucking boring. I can only imagine that the production of this film was fueled by cocaine, and the things that made the final film looked a lot funnier while you were high on blow. In usual Vinegar Syndrome fashion, the presentation looks great. Although grain-heavy, the picture was sourced from original 35mm prints. There are two cuts of the film presented here. I watched the uh, theatrical cut based on fan feedback on online, but I did skim the director's cut. And I noticed that in the theatrical cut, there's a lot more nudity. Uh, I, I'm guessing it was like stu studio wanted them to throw in that Porky's style breasts. But um, that's that's one of the main differences I saw. Again, I haven't watched the director's cut in full and not sure I have the stomach to do that. There are four different commentary tracks, which I definitely need to dig into. There's also an hour-long documentary called The Stupidest Movie Ever Made, so I guess the supplemental materials and I are on the same page. Unfortunately for me, and maybe fortunately for you, Surf 2 wasn't the worst thing I watched this week, because the second disc I pulled out is called Alien from Los Angeles, Alien from L.A., from 1989. Meet Wanda, a typical California girl who took a very untypical trip to Africa and found herself on a journey downward through a bottomless pit that led to the center of the earth. Where are you from? From out of town. It's dangerous for strangers in Atlantis. People get kidnapped. Wanda has found the adventure of a lifetime and the romance of her dreams. If only she can live through it. Find this girl and lots of lotto money will be yours. It's you! I run! I run! There she is! Hey! Stop! A boring square from Los Angeles is thrust into a weird subterranean world when she goes to Africa on a search for her father's body, but falls down a hole into the center of the earth. I feel pretty stupid because until the end of the film, I actually thought the movie was called Alien in L.A., and I was sitting there like, when are we actually going back to Los Angeles? 
Later, I realized the title was pretty stupid because there are also no aliens in the film. In short, this movie is a steaming pile of ass. It's like a combination of Alice in Wonderland and Journey to the Center of the Earth, but instead of finding a fantastical world full of adventure, Alice just fell down a hole and landed in a pond of thick diarrhea. Enter Kathy Ireland. Body of a goddess. Face of an angel. Voice of a smurf. In 1988, her Barbizon modeling career had taken off, and her agents must have felt like she'd outgrown her L.A. gear contracts, so Canon Films gave her her first big break. From the very first moment Kathy Ireland is on screen, you'll regret starting this film just because of her voice. Now, I'll give her some credit. After working on this film, I've read that she did a lot with vocalists to improve her delivery and her cadence, and I don't even know if this was her actual voice, Maybe this was just direction from Albert Pune to uh, to have this type of delivery, but she sounds like an oblivious eight-year-old girl continuously whining because her big brother took her favorite toy. In the first scene, backed by an epic soap opera score, we see Wanda's boyfriend Robbie breaking up with her because she's scared of traveling, which ruined his summer, and in his words, your glasses make you look stupid, your hair is ugly, you dress like a nerd, you walk like a clod, and your voice gives me a headache. Then again, even her best friend kind of treats her like she's a nuisance in the few scenes we see her in, so maybe Wanda just needs a better support system overall. Long story short, she gets a letter that her dad has died by falling into a bottomless pit in Africa, so in an effort to change so that she can win Robbie back, she decides to get over her fear of flying and heads over to Africa to see how her estranged dad lived. While there, she finds a bunch of pictures her dad had of her showing that he probably did care about her even if he hadn't spoken to her in 10 years, even though there's a phone in the same room as the photographs. She explores his space a bit and ends up falling down the same bottomless pit her pops did in a scene featuring CGI that is sure to give you a chuckle. Then we spend about 80 minutes in this weird community under the earth that looks like a meld of Dennis Leary's hideout and Demolition Man and your nearest sewer. I'm pretty sure this was Albert Pune's first crack at a dystopian land, and he probably recycled the sets for his Jean-Claude Van Damme epic Cyborg, which was filmed the following year. Unfortunately, it's not half as fun as Cyborg, and that's coming from someone who thinks Cyborg is a piece of shit. It drags along at a snail's pace as we take Wanda through the ringer, as the people in the underground wasteland think she's some kind of spy or alien. Watch for a poignant moment of character development as Wanda's glasses get smashed, and she just decides she doesn't need glasses anymore. Now I know what you're thinking, does she get Robbie back? Actually, no one's thinking that, because this dude's a dickhead and she deserves way better. But her time underground has certainly changed her. Hey Rob, remember when you said her glasses made her look stupid, her hair was ugly, she dressed like a nerd, walked like a clod, and her voice gave you a headache? Well, in the last scene, she's not wearing glasses. Her hair is wet from going in the ocean, she's in a bikini, and even though she still walks like a clod and her voice is the same, you're looking at an all-new Wanda, you fucking loser. Alien from L.A. is a harmless film, but it's also a funless film. Yes, that's a new word, just made it up, we're going to keep it. Despite Kathy Ireland's innocent charm hidden behind her glass-cracking voice, there just isn't any joy or suspense to be derived from the movie. Understandably, the film failed to launch Kathy Ireland's career, as the next year she would play Credits Girl in Worth Winning, and then played the character of Marie in Side Out, a feature-length adaptation of Top Gun's volleyball scene. Now, I didn't like Alien from L.A., but others did. Here's a comment from Ruprecht on IMDb. They say, what a great movie. 
with a dark, dusty visual style every bit as good as Blade Runner, with costumes and props every bit as good as Mad Max, with a totalitarian theme every bit as good as THX 1138, and with a satirical wit every bit as deadpan as Robocop, this film was quite an achievement. I mean, wow. High praise, highest praise from Ruprecht. Backboy36, also on IMDb, says, Most reviewers won't give it a break, but is a good example of what I like about movies. It doesn't take itself seriously. It has a few good laughs and some action. So don't just take my word for it. Alien from L.A. is available right now from Vinegar Syndrome. Okay, I gotta get my sexy voice on for this one. Did you just take a shower? If not, you probably smell like a pile of trash. The good news is, there are ways to smell better without having to go through the hassle of showering. But the easiest way is with today's sponsor, Sex Panther Cologne. Sex Panther is the most awesome cologne ever made in the history of the entire world. And 60% of the time, it works every time. It lures you in with clean and refreshing top notes of juniper and fresh air accord while the heart contains notes of lavender and Bigfoot's dick. How does it pull off this cornucopia of masculine notes? It's made with real bits of panther, making it illegal in nine countries. It'll sting your nostrils, but in a good way. So slap some on and let's see if we can't make that little kitty purr. Sex Panther. It comes in a bottle, so you don't have to. Welcome back to the Force 5 Podcast. Tonight I'm joined by Thomas from a podcast called Movies After Work. Thomas, how's it going? How are you? It's going good. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for coming on. Um, We're going to talk more about your show here in a little bit, but I'd like to start off just by kind of getting into your general taste in movies. What are some of your favorite movies of all time? Uh, uh, Some of my favorite of all time would be Limelight, uh, the 1952 Charlie Chaplin film. Brazil, uh, Terry Gilliam's my favorite director. Brazil's my favorite of his. And uh, Mystery Science Theater 3000, the movie. What was your inspiration for this list today? We're doing uh, five good movies with bad endings. Uh, Well, that's how I would word it. What was your inspiration for this list? Uh, I had been talking movies with, um, with some guys at work. And it kind of hit me that I couldn't really think of, uh, you know, I could think of some movies that, uh, as I think I initially put it to you, uh, Trip at the Finish Line. Yep. And I started trying to think how far back I could go. Like, you know, could I think of movies from the 70s, the 60s, the 50s, and so on? And I just couldn't. And yeah, I mean, I... That when when I was working on this list, the the oldest film I uh, that I could find was on my list, and it's from the nineties. Well, I've got one from the seventies on mine. Oh, okay. I'm excited. <laughs> I'm I'm excited that I yeah that had been kind of my theory was that this was kind of a new phenomenon. Movies just kind of not making it to the end of their movie, but I'm. I'm happy to to hear something that postulates otherwise. 
Yeah, I'll have a couple deep cuts on here for everybody because I agree a lot of a lot of what I thought of was more recent. I have one from the 90s on my list as well, so I'm wondering if we have the same one from the 90s. <laughs> and uh, the other ones are all from the 2000s and on. Let's just get into it. Let's get into the list. You know what's going to happen? Five good movies with bad endings. Is your list in any kind of order? I I did make it a little bit in order of of the severity that the uh, that the that the issue is for the film as a whole, or how much it took away from my enjoyment. I think the only film on here that I I only have one film on here that I wasn't enjoying, and then it got to the end, and I went, "Wow, that's." That you could have saved the movie and you chose not to. That's a bold decision. Yeah, for for me, my order that's just my my order is from like you know simple things that take you out of the movie to things that just destroy the structure of the movie. I guess I'll roll on along those same lines with how much it took away from my ending thoughts on the movie. If I'm gonna go along the lines that you're thinking, I'm gonna start with mine from the '70s. So we'll start off hot with kind of a deep cut here. This is from 1977, and the movie is called Death Game. Donna and Jackson are every man's fantasy. I hug you and kiss you. Love you, George. I want you so much. I'm glad we knocked on your door, George. Oh, that music sounds wonderful. But if you're not careful and you turn the sound way up, you could break a lot of glassware. And one man's nightmare. When Donna and Jackson play, they go all the way. Familiar with the death game? I am not, but the title makes me want to watch it tonight. (laughs) Well, I guess I'll ask you this. Have you heard of the Keanu Reeves movie Knock Knock? Yes. So Knock Knock is almost a direct remake of Death Game from 1977. Oh, all right. The plot is almost the same until the ending and the ending is different in the Keanu Reeves version than it is in Death Game and I'm guessing it's because the Death Game ending was very bad you have this wealthy man that lives in San Francisco and he opens his door to two attractive girls they're standing there this man's family's on vacation they're somewhere far away they don't have any context to what he's doing and he lets the two attractive girls in And it's like the line in Detroit Rock City where the character says that uh, a lot of horror movies start out this way. And the other person says, well, a lot of porn movies start out this way, too. And this gentleman, of course, thinks this is the beginning to his own fantasy as these girls seduce him into a threesome in a hot tub. Now, that's where the pleasures for this gentleman stop, because after this, they proceed to humiliate and torture him they show their true colors they are truly psychologically damaged women through well i can't say through no fault of their own but it is clear that they've had past issues with males it's a really interesting plot around the consequences of infidelity and sexual deviancy as these girls turn from the models at the front door to raving lunatics 
Now, the ending in the Keanu Reeves movie, and I'm going to spoil Knock Knock here. So if you haven't seen Knock Knock, now's the time to uh, to mute your speakers for a couple minutes. But <laughs> I honestly don't think that Knock Knock is a great movie. But the ending in the Keanu Reeves movie, which goes along the same plot, is that the girls bury him up to his neck so he can't move. And they have a video of him and his infidelity playing as they leave the house laughing, presumably on to the next unlucky chap's house. Well, in this one, that same type of ending happens. And then the girls stroll down the street they are having fun. They're laughing about their experience, embarrassing and humiliating this man when a van inexplicably out of nowhere comes around the corner and hits them. <laughs> and as it hits them, like as it makes contact, it freeze frames and then it goes into the credits. And it is clear. It's clear to me that this was like late 70s studio interference where they're like, yeah. we can't let these girls walk away. From this, they they deserve death, and they just reshot this because it, it definitely wasn't them. And it's such an embarrassing, out-of-nowhere ending for this movie. Uh, and then you, of course, have the ridiculous theme song that plays over it. The theme song is one of the worst things in this movie. Other than that, I, I, pr I pretty much like the movie until the ending, but wow. Yeah, and I know that Knock Knock had an, an alternate ending, so I could definitely see where... Um where that alternate ending came from. Because I believe that the ambiguous ending was a middle ground to the... Because the, the, the alternate ending is they don't just have the video and play it for him. Um, what he's looking at on his phone is the social media post from his account of the video that they posted through his account. So he's basically having to be in the dirt watching as everyone finds out including his family he gets out of the dirt and shows up at their next victim's house um to to, to enact revenge that i did not see and that's interesting too because that also kind of defeats the like that that puts you in the in the rooting interest of keanu reeves and i also don't think that's the intention yeah yeah it's one of those everyone's the villain so who do you root for psychological things i think the death game is a pretty interesting movie if you can find it it's just wow that ending i invite you to watch the just watch the ending on youtube it's <laughs> so weird the girls are just dancing around and it's this the late 70s there was like they dance around and on the street for an inordinate amount of time before this van just comes screeching around the corner and hits them i i'm guessing they dance around just long enough to make sure that the song they're dancing to is stuck in your head so you go by the buy the song oh of course and you will not want to buy the song i can't see how anybody in 1977 would want to buy that song thomas what's number five on your list of good movies with bad endings uh so my number five i i went with just you know a, a super super common one but still one that kind of hurt nonetheless and that was 2001's the mummy returns a force more powerful than any the world has ever known is about to be unleashed by the two people who should know better. You've got this movie that's 
you know, it's not as good as the original, but it's still fun. Uh, the characters are still the characters that you knew and loved. The, the, the world building's not terrible, and it's not flat out messing with continuity or anything. And then the Scorpion King comes out in all of his weird CGI blob glory. Oh yeah, the CGI in in that year just does not hold up. And that, I mean, there are so many people that I talk to where they view the movie as a bad movie just because of that CGI character. Like, they they almost forget about the entire movie, like, two hours that happened before that and just focus on, just focus on that. So, and it's, yeah, it's jarring. It's, it's unfortunately super memorable and definitely that, that CGI character probably derailed Stephen Summers' career more than, than anything else. I don't think I've seen that film since it was in theaters, but I... Along your same lines, that's really the only thing I remember from it. The only other thing I know now, uh, just because of of other stuff that also hurts, is that this movie is the reason that um, Adewale, I can never pronounce the rest of his name, but the guy who played Killer Croc in Suicide Squad, uh, he, orig- he was on the HBO drama Oz, and he left that show to make this movie. Oh, that poor guy. Yeah. So, one, it's not that big a part for him to begin with. And two, because the movie didn't do well, it didn't really help his career at all. I got to rewatch some of those mummy films, at least the first two, because they were... Uh, I remember the first one being really fun, and then I just oh, yeah. kind of forgot about it. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's an absolute blast. And it's really... It's a fun, creative uh, approach to making a modern universal horror movie. I guess I'll go with my 90s one here for number four. I guess part of me understands why the character does what the character does, but I also think that it's infuriating because there is absolutely no growth until the last couple minutes. It's from a movie from 1997 called Chasing Amy. I'm just having a little girl trouble. Pressing charges? I get that a lot. Holden McNeil was set in his ways, the way he worked, the way he lived, and the way he thought love should be. But then, she showed up. Let me guess, you like her. This girl loves me. There's something you should know. She got a boyfriend. Well, no. Then what's to know, my friend? And this girl's got a secret. That's going to drive him crazy. Yeah, Kevin Smith fan. I I am, I am a Kevin Smith fan. Although I uh, I definitely live in the the realm of a lot of people of this movie not aging well at all. Yeah, it's definitely got some sexual politics that don't they don't come across very well now. But if I'm ranking Kevin Smith movies, I think despite the ending of this i think this is still near the top it's like between this and and clerks but the the plot of chasing amy is that you have these two comic book artists and everything's going well for them and then they meet Alyssa. she's a female comic book artist 
and Holden, played by Ben Affleck, falls in love with her, and he then finds out that she's a lesbian. And the rest of this movie is him trying to deal with the fact that she's a lesbian. He's trying to, um, <laughs> I mean, for lack of a better term, he's almost like trying to convert her yeah. to being straight. And that's where a lot of the, the the 90s shows through. At some point in this movie, she gives him a shot. And I think she explains it really well. And it's been a while since I've seen it, but she, she's basically not... Uh, she she doesn't care for labels and she's like, I'm going to give it a shot. And so he starts to date her and everything's going well. And then all of a sudden he starts hearing a lot of rumors about her, about her past, specifically her sexual past. And this drives his mind into a frenzy. And this is something that I think a lot of people can relate to that, uh, that like as silent Bob says, is that stupid guy bullshit, or it could just be stupid person bullshit where it's like, you get so wrapped up in somebody's past and he's sitting there at this diner with Jay and Silent Bob, the resident stoners of Kevin Smith's films. And uh, he's talking about his difficulties in this relationship. And Silent Bob, of course, breaks his silence for a story that he frames as chasing Amy. Uh, and it's about the past being unimportant and that the thing that's important really is your love right now because if you give this up because of your past you're always going to be chasing what you had it's a really touching story and holden takes that story in an entirely stupid way in one of the very last scenes of the film he gets his friend banky in the room with her and he basically proposes a threesome i know what we have to do and then you banky you, Alyssa, and I, all of us, can finally be all right. Please don't say it. We've all got to have sex together. I mean, look, don't you see? That, that would take care of everything. Alyssa, with you, I won't feel too inadequate or conservative anymore because I'll have done something on a par with all of your experience. And it'll be with you, which will make it that much more powerful. And, and, and Banky, you can take that leap that everyone else but you sees you should take, and it'll be with me, your best friend for years. We've been everything to each other but intimates, and, and now we've been through that together too. And it won't be a total leap for you because a woman will be involved. And when it's over, all that hostility and aggression you feel toward Lissa will be gone because you'll have shared in something beautiful with the woman I love. And he thinks somehow that this is going to solve their problem. So instead of dealing with dealing with his issues in a in a healthy way, he proposes a threesome that essentially alienates both of these people. And then it cuts to a year later where neither one of them are close with one another. And they just they kind of share like a glance at a at a Comic-Con type of convention and it just came across as so stupid and i get it uh holden just not a mature character but from a, just a human lens wow it's it's a really dumb ending to a movie that i thought was pretty well written and it can come off as offensive now but i still think that it's a good movie for me this this is not super high up on the jersey chronicles films from kevin smith for me uh I mean, the, the scenes that work, work really well. The scenes that, that don't, 
really don't like the the proposed threesome scene. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's one of those movies where if you made it in today's age where we're more willing to make a movie about how the guy is wrong and an idiot and with a better understanding of um, sexual identity. So that way we're not just framing her as a lesbian because it's the only thing we can think of. Um, and, you know, a woman writes and directs it, then you might have a, a, a film that works. But yeah, being from a male gaze... Yeah, it when it hits that end point, it is it is hit. It's embarrassing. A, a brick wall. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It is. Uh so yeah, Chasing Amy is my number four from nineteen ninety seven. Not a good ending. Not a good ending. I had, yeah, I hadn't even thought I haven't thought about that ending in, in ages. I just I think I spend <laughs> so much time I spend so much time thinking about how the second act hasn't aged well, I don't even I don't even make it to how the third act <laughs> That is wasn't a fair even aged point. to begin with. And it's like watching any R-rated 80s film where clearly you were legally obligated to have a woman randomly be topless for no discernible appropriate reason. Yes. Every single uh, time you see that and you're just like, why? The 80s are full of movies that make you think like, wow, this is entirely wrong where you have like sexual assault uh, played for laughs. and Oh, yeah. The comedies especially are just cringy on on a whole other level all right thomas what's your number four uh my number four is uh 2019's us jason jason where were you i didn't know if you were lost stick with me and i'll keep you safe There's a family in our driveway. It's probably the neighbors. But y'all scared of a family? Hi, can I help you? Zora, put your shoes on. If you want to get crazy, we can get crazy. This is, a, this is a great movie. It's continuation of Jordan Peele doing a great job. As much as I love uh, Get Out, I think... Us has over across the board stronger acting, stronger performances, and I think the score is better than Get Out's. Uh, they're both good, but I just prefer Us's. But then we get to the reveal, and the reveal becomes this you know, we have this really nice sweater that we've made all throughout this movie, and the last thing you leave us with is a little thread to pull based off of that final plot twist. And it doesn't take long before you get home and you've completely unraveled the sweater. Cause for, I mean, for, for those who haven't seen it, we find out that the, the mother that we've been following is not actually, she's, she's the down below copy and the one that we has been, tormenting us is the one that she kidnapped when she was a child but unfortunately it it, it raises so many questions like she can talk why didn't she, how did she not teach everyone to talk because clearly 
they can learn to talk. Otherwise, our lead, who we thought was the her- the hero, would be a very, very silent person instead of constantly talking. And that's just, I mean, that's the beginning of pulling the thread because of the, the plot twist. I, you know, I was looking through my collection. I was trying to garner up ideas and I saw Get Out. I'm like, well, that had a perfect ending. And then I realized how much I disliked us. Just in, I thought it was really well shot, but wow, I hated that movie so much. <laughs> I couldn't put it on my list because I didn't feel like it stumbled at the end. I felt like it just stumbled the entire way. And I can understand. I can understand it being that way for people. And uh, who knows? Uh, second watching might not do it well for me. But again, I thought the performances were strong. Winston Duke to me is somebody who should be getting a lot more, a big Hollywood roles than he's getting because I think he's a phenomenal actor. I I get when people watch that movie and come out of it going meh. Yeah, I was so excited too. I'm excited for what he does next. I just us was a mm-hmm. uh, sophomore slump for me. Well, uh, my next three are three movies that absolutely infuriated me <laughs> with their endings. Um, I guess I'll start with 2007's "I Am Legend" as my number three. I'm not. I'm not infected. I'm not infected. Please. Nothing happened the way it was supposed to happen. Six billion people on Earth when the infection hit. I'm a survivor living in New York City. I will be at the South Street Seaport every day at midday when the sun is highest in the sky. I Am Legend is based on a book from the 50s, which makes this even more baffling because they had a perfect ending already written for them. And the way that I Am Legend ends completely undermines the themes and the title of the movie. I think that's why I get so angry when I think about I Am Legend. It's This is obviously the Will Smith movie. Mm-hmm. A lot of people saw it in 2007. I think I remember reading it was like the biggest December release of all time. That wasn't like a, a holiday movie hmm. in December. And I think the plot is is a good one. I'm a fan of post-apocalyptic worlds and the plot of I am legend is that this virus is created for the purpose of battling cancer. And so it's given to those with cancer and it looked promising, but in a few years it mutated into this plague that either kills the people of earth or turns them into these creatures they're called like, they're almost like night uh, vampire creature things. And there are only a few who are immune. Among them, of course, is Will Smith's character, Robert Neville. He's a military scientist, and he's been spending these years after the plague trying to find a cure. He's got a German shepherd with him. He's walking through these empty streets of the city, and he's losing hope. So he's, he's trying to find the cure while he's trying to stay alive from these night vampire creature things. Now, the point of the story... The point of I Am Legend, the book anyway, is that we're empathizing with Will Smith as this hunter in this post-apocalyptic world. But by the end, we're supposed to realize that he's the legend that this other race is scared of. The title, like he is the monster that these other beings are seeing. And they instead went with an ending where it was like, Will Smith finds a cure. And, and it completely obliterated the themes 
and the title of the book. And even more infuriating is that they filmed the the normal ending, like the book ending was filmed and it, you can find it on the Blu-ray and it's way better. And they just didn't use it. I'm guessing they, I don't know if they wanted to like set it up for a sequel or it was like, this is a Will Smith movie. We can't have a downer ending. But it, it was extremely disappointing. I Am Legend from 2007, just an epic failure of an ending. And I think maybe they tried to twist the title in their minds is like, I am legend, like he's going to be the legend that saves the earth. But that's not what the theme of the book was about. It was about man as monster and not realizing it. And us as the audience, not realizing it either, because we are human beings. Unfortunately, I'd be willing to gather that the studio thought more people would be willing to go to a film called I Am Legend starring Will Smith than a film called The Omega Man. Yeah, it sits right at that time where we were, studios were kind of afraid of the lead being at fault. I think it's the reason why we have such a strong history of television in the 2000s is because Hollywood suddenly didn't want their heroes to not be heroic. And so television was like, okay, we're going to make The Shield. We're going to make Breaking Bad. We're going to make House. We're, we're going to do it if you're not going to. Well, my, num- my number three is um, breaking things a little bit because this was a movie that I just I didn't enjoy overall. But the ending infuriated me to the point where there was no turning back. There was no there was no going, OK, maybe I need to rewatch it with a clean head or something like that. And that was 2016's Arrival. There are days that define your story beyond your life. Like the day they arrived. Signs of what might be called first contact. The objects measure at least. I'm Colonel G.T. Weber from Army Intelligence. Pack your bags. You're at the top of everyone's list when it comes to translations. Priority one. What do they want? Where are they from? You'll be reporting to me, but you'll be working with him when you're in the show. That's what they call him, the UFO. Really? Okay, that's surprising to me. I love this film. This, yeah, this throws a lot of people off this, you know, and he's, I I call him Diet Chris Nolan, but he's, he's very, he's very popular. He's very in, he's got his, his landscape collage of Dune coming out that everyone's excited for. Um, but for me, you know, I'm, I was watching Arrival and, you know, setting aside how I felt about the rest of the film. You know, we're going through it. We're going through with Amy Adams as she's trying to do this, this linguistic stuff. Uh, the sort of thing to me that can be really fascinating if you just commit to the reality of how fascinating the the science of it can be. Um, and then we get to the big end thing of their language creates time, tr- you know, like basically turns your turns time nonlinear for your for your consciousness um and at that point we th- we have this idea that we think is a really cool idea but there are no rules to it there is no we've we've hinted at it existing already 
but either it shouldn't have existed or it should have existed in full force. Like it just, it's, it gets to a point for me where I sit there, I sat there after the movie trying to understand what the rules of this world were, what the rules of the plot twist were. And I just couldn't find any. And so it just made the movie make less sense to me. I can respect that opinion. I I think that when I watched Arrival, I was more I was more invested in the emotional side of it than trying to figure out the logistical side of it, but I can understand how if you try to look for or to make sense of the way that the beings work, I can see how that would would absolutely be frustrating. I'm I'm big about, you know, world building. Um it's it's one of the reasons why I'm a Terry Gilliam fan for especially the films that he writes himself, because they always have, you know, time bandits especially would be an incoherent mess if it didn't have such consistent, coherent rules to the, to the world established to it. Um, A lot of horror movies are the same way. So I, I think just because of, the kind of movies that I normally watch and the, the movies I watched growing up, I just always, if you establish something, my brain always goes, okay, what are the rules that we're following in this? How are we, how are we living in this world? Let me ask you this. I know you have a little one at home, right? Mm-hmm. Did you see it before you had your kid or did you see it after you had your kid? I saw it before I had my, before I had my daughter. So I saw this when it I think I, I believe I was working at a movie theater, so I actually did a test screening of it the nice. before the movie came out. I do wonder if you would find a different message in it now that you're a dad versus beforehand, because I think I got a lot more out of it the second time, even though I liked it the first time. I think I got way more out of it the second time and felt a deeper emotional connection once I watched it when I was a dad. I honestly may have to give it a rewatch just to uh just to see just to find out if there's any any truth to that. I'd be I'd be interested to to see what you think now. Yeah, I might have to might have to find some time to sit down and give it a rewatch. It's it's definitely if I give it a rewatch, I want to respect it enough with going into it to watch it beginning to end without stopping, which yeah, as you know with having kids becomes a challenge in its own right. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) Uh, Well, on to my number two. This one is a Spanish language film that the title translated is Perfect Strangers, or the Spanish title is Perfectos Desconocidos from 2018. Perfect Strangers is in the Guinness Book of World Records because although this is the Mexican version of this film, there are 18 remakes of this plot originally and 18 remakes of a movie made in 2016. That's insane. And I think the reason it's been remade in so many different countries is because number one, the plot all takes place in one location. Number two, it is a very interesting setup. And number three, you can do a lot with a very minimal budget, but the, the plot to perfect strangers is it's based around a dinner party. So we start as these these two, uh, this couple is preparing to have friends over for a dinner party, and then all of a sudden another couple shows up, and then a third couple shows up, and then uh, a single guy shows up because his significant other couldn't make it. 
as they're setting up for dinner, they start joking around about cell phones and they come up with a party game in which they all put their phones in the middle of the table. And during dinner, whenever any of the phones rings or texts or you get any any type of notification, you have to either read the text out loud or answer the phone on speakerphone with without telling the person that is calling that you're on speakerphone. Hmm. So that that that's the game. And of course, we have these characters, six of these characters, or seven rather, of these characters sitting around the table with secrets in their phones that if they come out during this dinner party, all hell is breaking loose. And it's a it's a really fun, really interesting premise. And at first, of course, the it's it's innocuous stuff like, oh, I got a notification that my Amazon package shipped, you know, that that kind of stuff. Yeah. And then it starts getting into texts that are more and more risque and need more and more explanation. And, and things start coming out about all of these people that um, stir the pot. Uh, you've got one character who may or may not be unfaithful. You've got a character. There's some comedy in there with like uh, sexuality. There's everybody's got a secret at this table. Hmm. Now, as we go through the movie, of course, things increase. And with about 10 minutes left, I'm thinking like, wow, these all of these lives are are ruined like how are these people going to reckon with these things that have come out because there are life-changing relationship destroying secrets as you might imagine with with like five minutes to go we have all these characters in different areas of the house some crying some trying to figure out like what am i going to do and then we quickly revert to just kidding they all decided not to play when the phones when they, when somebody brought up the game and <laughs> what you just saw was what could have happened it's very much a play on the common 80s trope of it was all a dream. Wow. That that thing that everybody hates. But in this scenario, it's even worse because all of these people at the, well, not all of the people, but most of the people at this table are scumbags. And without the reality of the game, there are no actual consequences for any of these people. And in one example, there's a there's a woman who's engaged to one of the men at the table. And during the game, it, it comes out that he is he not only has cheated on her, but has gotten somebody else pregnant. And without the reality of the game, we are to assume that she probably married this dude. She is probably trapped in this relationship because the movie, the scriptwriter, didn't have enough courage to, like, really land that ending. And I... I watched this not too long ago in when I was in Mexico and I was just absolutely livid by that ending. Yeah. that oh, Wow. That is, that's insane. Now the, the interesting thing about the remakes is this movie has been made 18 times in, you know, Spain, Turkey, Hungary, Greece, China, Russia, South Korea, France, all these different countries and never has it been remade here for the United States. Which is is honestly amazing because we are usually first in line to say, "Hey, you made a movie? Can we make it?" <laughs> so it's yep. very it's very weird that we wouldn't be first in line to jump on it, especially because you could really, I mean, you you could convince some new director to make it a teeny film. You could convince 
some more seasoned director to get a strong cast and try to make it an Oscar bait film. It's got basically whatever the producers wanted it to be. It could be. I've, I've spent an insane amount of time thinking about who I would cast in those roles too. <laughs> I, I can imagine I mean, you hear a movie's been remade that many times. Your brain immediately has to go to, well, what if, what if we did that here? Yep. And I'm sure we will get it at some point. The money's there clearly. <laughs> Uh, so my number two is uh, 2017's First Reformed. I have decided to keep a journal to set down all my thoughts and the simple events of my day. I will keep this diary for one year, and at the end of that time, it will be destroyed. I encouraged my son to enlist. It was a family tradition. Six months later, he was dead in Iraq. I was lost. My sense the reading of the Lord. Praise be God. This is one of those movies, I'm not sure how many, have you, did you get a chance to see this one? I did, yeah, this is uh, Ethan Hawke. Yes. Uh, so yeah, so for, for people who haven't had a chance to see this film, Ethan Hawke plays pastor at uh, this very small church where he, you know, he's slowly losing more and more people more of his congregation to the big mega church that is that is also in town and his kind of disillusionment that it's causing him to see people not want to be there for the word of god um and then when he's called upon by a young couple for counsel of sorts and then a tragedy strikes for them he slowly finds himself kind of intertwining himself in the cause that they lived in, finding a sense of purpose. And the problem with this film is that it builds up amazing tension to the point where in the final 20 minutes, you are watching Ethan Hawke put on his, his, I'm going to say vestulate, but I'm probably wrong about the word. Like he putting on his, putting on his garb to, to go on to, to do this big sermon that brings his church and the mega church together. And he's strapping a bomb onto himself and he's basically planning on suicide bombing this place and the congregation of this mega church and the reverend of it, who he's friends with. Um, and so it's this, you know, it's all this tension about, you know, what's he, is he going to go through with this or is, you know, is he so lost into their cause that he's going to fully commit to it or is he going to snap out of it? And then right at the very end, the, the widow now comes in, sees him. And they basically just kiss and run off together. Even the scene putting on the bomb is kind of disturbing because yeah. it's been a. I saw it in 2017, but he, like, he's wrapping himself in barbed wire, if I remember correctly. Yes, he's he's fully martyring himself in as extreme a way as he possibly can. Um, yeah, it's it's intense stuff, which is why it's so not just anticlimactic but 
it's almost like a bad joke that out of nowhere he suddenly apparently has a romantic opinion of this woman that we've really never even remotely suggested up till this point and decides to just stop everything he's doing and run off with her and everything going on in the congregation no longer matters. This is a Paul Schrader film. And I've heard the theories that like there's a there's a thing with Drano in here too. Like, does he drink the Drano oh, yeah. or does he not drink the Drano? And one of the explanations I've heard that you can't tell with the film because it's pretty ambiguous, but like like does he drink the Drano and sacrifice himself and just imagine running off with the girl is another theory. And I mm. think that when it's a movie that's ambiguous like this, it's not always a good thing. I think when you're playing with um, the concepts of of faith and and purpose and all the all the deep issues that this film was trying to to address on some level, and ambiguity is is really not a good way to go. I personally think, if not for that ending, this film probably would have gotten more award season attention. And I agree with that. It, and instead, it basically got nothing. My number one just upset me so much. <laughs> and that's because it's a sequel to a movie that I think is amazing. Uh, 2012. I couldn't have been more excited to watch The Dark Knight Rises. Do you think he's coming back? I don't know. Why would you run, eh? You should be as afraid of him as I am. I won't bury you. I've buried enough members of the Wayne family. Much like many uh, comic book movie fans, I have a deep love for The Dark Knight. I thought it was just amazing, elevated by Heath Ledger's performance and... Obviously, his untimely passing meant that the Joker couldn't appear in the sequel, or the I guess the uh, the third installment of the series. Yeah. They were going to introduce Bane, this foil of Batman's who, I don't know if you read comic books when you were younger, but I mean, oh, yes. that Bane cover of him snapping Batman's back is iconic. Oh yeah, infamous. And I was so excited to see this. I mean, it obviously it diverts from the comic, but you still get that scene where Batman gets broken going up against Bane. Batman, this person who's been so confident in his skills, and he goes up and tries to go hand-to-hand, I'm going to punch you in the face, and doesn't realize until it's too late that you can't attack Bane that way. He breaks his back, and he has to go through this huge journey of coming back and stopping Bane. And Batman as a character is supposed to be smarter than those he's facing. He's the world's greatest detective. And although he'll beat the crap out of you, if he realizes that he's overmatched, he's going to find a way to beat that person, not with fists, but with his head. And he goes through this this training exercise as he basically comes back a whole new man. And finally, he comes up against Bane for the finale. And what does he do? He punches Bane in the face. 
He goes with the exact same tactics, the exact same tactics that got his back broken in the first place. And that's where the infuriation starts. We've got this great villain that I think, I mean, it's kind of cartoony and the voice is kind of silly, but I really like Tom Hardy as Bane. And I'm looking forward to see how Batman finishes off Bane. And he doesn't. It's Catwoman that does it. And it's out of nowhere. She uses the bat cycle to blow a hole through him. And it's like, okay, Bane killed unceremoniously. What's going to happen now? Then we get this late third act. Just kidding. Bane's not the real villain moment. All that aside, the very end, we've got a nuke. And this nuke needs to be flown out of the city because the main villain has made it so you cannot stop this nuke. It's going to go off. We got to get it out of the city. And there's only one person that can get it out of the city, and that's Batman. But the uh, the autopilot on his on his like aircraft thing is destroyed, so he's going to have to sacrifice himself for the good of this city. And I really thought that's what this whole trilogy was like building up towards. As they say at the end of the second, as Gary Oldman's character says, "You either die a hero or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain." Like they've built it into the script. Well, that was that was Aaron Eckhart who says that in in Dark Knight because it's because it's foreshadow dialogue. The the theme though remains the same, right? It's like yeah, and and we all know at this point that that Christian Bale's done with Batman. We all know that this is Nolan's last Batman, and it's like wow, they're really gonna do it. He flies this thing out of the city. Seconds left. Boom! It blows up. The city of Gotham is saved. And then we have the epilogue. We've got this stupid stuff with Robin. It's like, Jesus Christ, really? We're going to go this way with with Joseph Gordon-Levitt. It's very on the nose. But then we've got Alfred sitting in Paris at a cafe, looks over, and there's Bruce Wayne sitting with the Catwoman. (laughs) You're trying to tell me that, I mean, it doesn't make sense on any level, but you're trying to tell me that, number one, Bruce Wayne, this international billionaire who many people know is just traipsing around Paris in 2012, age of cell phones. Like, okay, so that's number one. Number two, it's a nuclear bomb. Even if he had, like, parachuted out, jumped out of that thing, he is a dead man. And it's got some great scenes before that. Man, it's got some great scenes. Uh, the, the the stadium in your neck of the woods getting blown up. Yes, still I, still talked about. Oh, it's such a great scene. And it's all wasted in the last 20 minutes. I thought the ending to The Dark Knight Rises is one of the worst endings that I've ever seen, considering what had come before it. Anyone who, who listens to my show knows what I think in general about Chris Nolan. Um, but I, I think there's a very, I think the most important lesson that hopefully people have learned from his, uh, Batman trilogy is if you deny the ridiculous, the ridiculous eventually just consumes you. You know, he spent two, you know, he spent all of Batman Begins refusing to let any of the like ridiculous or cartoony or 
ness of of Batman come in, and then it starts to seep in in Dark Knight, and then in Dark Knight Rises, it just consumes everything until you until you find literally any any other director would have just gone on the nose and right before it blew up would have had Batman lean back in the the bat wing and go some days you just can't get rid of a bomb and then boom and everyone who had seen the 60s movie would have applauded and cheered and not cared that Batman had just died um but yeah it's yeah he he sets up a premise you're i mean you're right he sets up a premise and then decides nah, never mind all right thomas on to your grand finale what is your number one on good movies with bad endings so my my number one uh is is one that when i was younger i loved it i thought it was great and then throughout college rewatching the movie i started thinking twice and then finally to this day i can't even watch the end of this movie anymore and it is 1995's four rooms this year miramax films takes great pride in extending to you an advance invitation to celebrate new year's eve at the monsignor hotel where a dozen of the most unusual guests ever will check in we have reservations And a lone bellhop named Dead on his first day on the job. All you have to do is hold the fort and the night's cake. Okay. Is in for the night of his life. We for for anyone who hasn't seen this this hilarious film, it is this dark comedy starring Tim Roth as a bellhop for this hotel. And Every he go visits four different rooms. Each of those four rooms is a different short story directed by a different director. So, for example, one of the rooms is a short story written and directed by uh, Robert Rodriguez, where this bellhop is having to look after these two crazy, behaving, way too adult esque children. And all sorts of stuff like this. And as these, you know, one of them is a witch coven that needs a man's sperm. And then he walks in to deliver the wine. And how they decide how they're going to try to get it out of him. And and Madonna, I think, is the the head witch uh, of the coven. And it's just, it's all this weird, crazy ridiculousness in each and every one of these of the first three stories and in between each story we see him kind of in the bellhop room and he's gaining a little bit more confidence with each story but he's also becoming more and more untethered and then you get to the final room the final room is written directed and stars quentin tarantino quentin tarantino takes all of the character development that everyone has worked hard on for this bellhop character and then basically doesn't even use the character. The whole scene is literally about Quentin Tarantino getting to just speak his dialogue. 
It's just him doing this endless, boring, pointless monologue with Bruce Willis in the background in an uncredited role, yelling and screaming at someone in the phone that I assume he looks at now as painful foreshadowing. But it's just this whole scene where you've gotten this great energy throughout the entire movie an amazing Tim Roth performance. And then you get to this final scene and Quentin Tarantino just ignores the main character. He's basically standing in the background for almost the entire scene. He has other actors in the scene with him. I can't even remember who else in the scene with him. Um, I know the guy that almost got Samuel L. Jackson's role in Pulp Fiction is one of them. It's just him talking and it kills the momentum of the movie and then the movie just kind of awkwardly ends so it's one of those movies where i can't i get to the point where it's time for his part to start and i just stop the movie Uh, i can't even watch it because it just invalidates the rest of the movie i think this is one that most people have probably only seen because they're quentin tarantino fans I don't even think Robert Rodriguez fans would dig this out for his part, but I think a lot of people who have seen this saw it because it's on Quentin Tarantino's filmography. Which is a shame, because they should. Um, Because the Robert Rodriguez section is good. It's, I mean, the best section is, um, I I cannot for the life of me remember who, oh, it's um, David Provol is is, um, holding Jennifer Beals hostage in one of the scenes and you can't and you and the bellhop can't figure out if it's an actual hostage situation or if it's a couple role playing and you just can't figure it out and it's stare and it's it's my favorite one in the whole thing um but yeah so people that like robert rodriguez they should check it out um because it's absolutely worth it it's so good all right, Thomas. Well, tell us about uh, tell us about movies after work. Uh, well, movies after work. It's a podcast that myself and my friend Alex do. It's basically we took our one a.m. trips to Denny's to sit and talk about movies and decided, hey, let's record them and see if anyone would listen. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'm talking about this, and I'm just like, man, it, you know, I listen to your show, and I'm always like, oh, he's got the the coolest guest author you know this person's involved in this this person's involved in that and then people are going to get to this episode and it's this guy does a podcast (laughs) but yeah that's the beauty of this show it can be anybody we just like talking movies yeah well and that's i mean that's what we do with movies after work we sometimes we pick a movie sometimes we do lists it varies depending on what we're up for but we talk movies we talk parenting we talk news and trailers just whatever whatever's going on in the world at that moment cool and uh where can we find more of your stuff obviously your show's going to be on things like apple podcasts oh yeah we yeah we're on uh apple podcasts uh google spotify pretty much anywhere that you're listening to this great show you can uh listen to our rambles uh if you want to see the the random thoughts that are coming out of my head in terms of the movie world i run our twitter page which is at movies work uh and we don't currently have a facebook but 
we've, we're just rocking it with the Twitter right now, which is fine with us. That's that's enough while being a full time dad and worker. Facebook sucks anyway. Yeah, it does. <laughs> well, thanks for coming on, Thomas. This was uh, this was a lot of fun, and I think people are going to have a lot of a lot of lists of their own on this one too. I can imagine. Yeah, and thank you, thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute blast coming on, and it was a blast sitting here trying to trying to come up with list ideas and then the list itself what's your favorite movie with a bad ending listeners let me know on instagram and twitter force five podcast on instagram force five pod on twitter i try to reply to every comment on every post so let's have some fun also head to force five podcast.com for the show request form if you want to be on i'm currently booking for august while you're checking out the site take a minute to rate and review the show on your favorite podcast platform Intro and outro bumpers today come courtesy of Nate Spears. The top five list bumper was produced by me with music from Audio Binger. Until next time, stay safe, stay sane, and I hope you're watching movies with good endings. Force 5.